Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast. My guest today is Lauren Cartigny. She is a transformational coach. In a moment, we're going to find out what a transformational coach does and is. She spent 15 years in tech. She's had a very successful career in sales. And uh, today, she's here to talk to you about subjects like, why is it? that you do get stressed? How do you know that you're stressed? Are there triggers that can indicate that you can make better choices so you don't dig yourself deeper into stress and you make better choices? How do you take responsibility and accountability for your part of um, how the other person feels in your relationships? So we're gonna explore loads and loads of really interesting topics today. Lauren, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Marcus. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Would you mind giving us maybe 60, 90 seconds on your history? Sure. So my background, um, I actually fell into sales when I came out of university. I did a degree in sport and exercise science at Loughborough. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I wanted to get into business. And I was told that when you've got a good degree from a good uni, you can do whatever you want. But obviously, sports science. As long as it's sales. As, well, yeah, exactly. Um, I, basically, I got reject, rejected from a lot of the graduate programs. And then I was like, oh, what am I going to do now? And I ended up working for a marketing agency and covered for a telesales person. You know, I had no idea at the time. You know, I had a fixed salary. I had a little car allowance. I was really happy. And I was just told to call these people and ask, you know, if they wanted space in this, like, magazine, in this, like, classified ads. And next thing you know, like, I'm selling stuff to people and it turned out I saw it more as you know helping people you know I didn't have a target I just was genuinely enjoyed the connection of people and that's how I kind of got into sales anyway and I went in I was lucky to you know get to London and go to a graduate program and actually was selected there by Rackspace and that was my break right into the tech industry so from there just you know had a successful career and kind of did all the ranks right SDR, AEM, key account manager, global account manager very quickly, you know, in 10 years. And, you know, by the time I got to 30, I closed a $10 million deal. And at that point, you know, you're kind of like, okay, cool. Like it's global remit. What's next? What do you want to do? And I wasn't getting the satisfaction that, you know, from just hitting the number because some of my life goals had already been achieved. And, you know, I really wanted to support people and help people. And that's where coaching, you know, kind of started, you know, uh, coming up for me. Okay. So what is transformational coaching as compared to coaching? So coaching is is a process of like creating a, like a thought provoking process to help people like create new awareness, right? The transformational coaching is the process of helping someone make a lasting shift, right? It's actually for me, I would call myself a behavioral like change expert because you know when I was trained, I'm an ICF coach, so you're trained with all these professional standards around you don't own the result, right? The coach owns the result. And um, you're just here to create a process for reflection to help them get to where they want to be. But ultimately, it's up to them. And I think that's great. <laughs> but I use the words transformational coach because if you can be really good at the beginning to understand what someone really wants, and if they're really motivated to do that and there's stakes for them to do that and they actually believe they can do it, if you can get them to that place or they're ready, then you can actually create a lasting shift and change the way that they perceive themselves. And when you change how you perceive yourself and you, you know, break limiting beliefs, you can actually transform. You can change who you are, change your habits. And when you have self-awareness, you can't undo it. So when you really change how you perceive yourself, you can't go back. And that's why I call transformational coaching because I work with clients, you know, 90 days, you will come out different. 
from your choice, your work, but you've got to kind of be ready for that kind of work. Well, it's really interesting. I mean, for years, um, one of the most powerful tools I've had in my toolkit is just having people journal because you can't lie to your journal without knowing you lied to it. And even five, 10 years later, you remember that doodle and then you remember that you fibbed a little and you fudged that and whatever because you thought someone else was reading it. But what's really powerful about self-awareness is how liberating it is. So let's spend a little bit of time talking about responsibility and being accountable for your outcomes as well as your behaviors and your thoughts. So let's explore that for a moment. What do you teach your clients in terms of uh, ownership? So often when I work with people, like I wouldn't say I kind of will tell them about ownership. I think it's kind of this this realization right at the beginning, right? Even just asking someone if you had a magic wand, what would you want for yourself? It's probably the hardest question I ask people because when you're like, no, no I'm, I can get you there. So just tell me what it is. People really struggle with that. Like, no, no, well, you know, I've had anxiety all my life and I've always had it and I'll always have it. So you can't help me with that. So let me think of something else. And you'd be like, okay, well, why not? Why, why would you have it all your life? You know, again, that's a belief. You know, sometimes we reinforce these beliefs. So I think one of the the hardest things for people to understand is that we create our own reality and therefore, you know, the thing that changes whether you're going to be a certain way or not is the goal you set yourself. And unfortunately, a lot of the time we limit ourselves. So when you have a coach coming in saying, hey, I can help you facilitate, I can facilitate you getting there. And the reason I'm so confident is because I've done it myself. I I have actually gone through the process and I think that's when I made the shift calling myself like a leadership coach, a transformational coach, because, you know, I was doing the standard performance coaching and I noticed that the pandemic that actually people were severely distressed and I was supporting them with some work I'd been doing and that was transferring, right? So I used to believe with self-awareness that, you know, people have to go through the same journey as me to get the self-awareness. Well, actually that's not true. Like if you work with someone that has certain self-awareness, they will transition that to you, that will transfer and you will meet them where they're at. Mm-hmm. And that's what helps you change and shift and access those different, you know, there's different ways of being. So I think the hardest thing for people to realize is I can be the, you know, is to give themselves permission to even allow themselves to believe I can be a certain way. And then secondly is believing that that's actually possible. Well, experience has taught me that many, many people carry some form of self-limiting belief, and I'm not worthy script, I don't deserve this, it can't last, what it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, um, you know, too good to be true, all this kind of stuff. And they find ways of undermining themselves. So how do you help them become aware that these stressors, these indicators are occurring? so that they can make better choices. Because I think ultimately it's how you respond to circumstance that determines your fate. Absolutely, yeah. You've said it really well. I think when it comes to responsibility, I think, again, we're going to be wired differently around our relationship with responsibility, right? Some people are going to be over 
fully responsible for themselves, right? And excuse themselves of everything. And other people are going to take no responsibility whatsoever. So it's a little bit like a spectrum, right? And again, based on your personality types, like you're going to have certain tendencies around that. But I think one of the biggest breakthrough I had in my own own change, right? Recovering from trauma was the fact that the way we're wired and our personality types and our limiting beliefs and all those things that, you know, make us great, but also may get in our way is not our fault. It's not our fault, the way we're wired, right? It's our upbringing, it could be a DNA, like all sorts of different things. But ultimately, you know, your personality types is set pretty much when you're like three and seven. So after that, you're an adult, you're a mini psychological, like psychologically, you're an actual adult. So you were not, you did not choose, right? Those things. You were exposed to an environment, you're exposed to parenting, you're exposed to things at schools, and you told yourself things to make sense of it, to protect yourself and to feel comfortable, right? And those things are not our fault. So when we're going to do like, you know, and that's the good and the bad, right? But later on, when we go and do work on ourselves and we start feeling shame or feeling embarrassed or feeling not good enough because, you know, there's some things that we do that we recognize we can't stop. It's understanding that it's not your fault. Okay. You're wired that way. And that served you up to now. However, if you're trying, if it's getting in the way of you doing something else, and that's when you want to start with taking responsibility for it. So while it's not your fault, it's your responsibility to change it if it's getting in your way of achieving your goals or if it's impacting someone in your life, right? Whether in your relationship or in your work. And, and often those things, obviously, we associate them as negative because because from my experience, people really only seek <laughs> this stuff when they're having a hard time. But actually, people that really thrive, they go and, and leverage that stuff as a prevention ahead and then they just like you know, accelerate their path. I just wanted to share that because that that difference between it's not my fault, but it's my responsibility to change it is a major thing. (laughs) It's a really important distinction because then you take ownership and you're not then being belabored by the guilt or whatever that baggage weighs on. uh, Weighs on you. In TA, they talk about reaching back into the past. So reach back and then dragging it into the present. So you have that afterburn and it's really very interesting to see how often we do this. I mean, even some of the most evolved people that I know fall into these traps because they're little triggers, psychological triggers that make us regress. And under pressure, we revert back to what we learned first. So you've got to replace those pathways. You've got to replace those patterns. Can you talk us through a, a framework, you know, maybe that people can get to get a a basic understanding of measuring their own level of stress so that they can realize what's going on. Sure, absolutely. So when it comes to stress, I mean, firstly, how do we define stress, right? I mean, for me, stress is really the gap between your expectations and the reality you're perceiving. And that gap is stress. Because if you're present with what the reality was there and then, there would be no gap, you wouldn't be stressed, you would purely be present. And actually, animals are the only one that can really perceive the world through its actual lens, like reality lens. However, us human beings, we have perceptions, we have filters, right, based on beliefs, and and that that, that will create some space in between to decide. Um, so, so yeah. So for me, it's that gap. And I remember when I was co- putting a lot of my pressure on myself when I was training to be a coach, and and I was just told, Lauren, like, just reduce your lower your expectation of yourself and you'll see, you'll feel really, really, you know, you'll feel a lot better very immediately. 
And it's true. It's true. So firstly, like reducing, you know, understanding that stress is the gap to expectation reality and you have control over the expectations you set. Right. We often think we don't because our, our um, you know, our boss, you know, has put us this on us or our partner or whoever. But actually you get to choose what's acceptable. Then the framework, I would say, is different people. You know, the way we feel stress is, you know, for me, is multidimensional. You can look at it as a behavioral thing. Uh, so what actions do I do when I'm stressed? And often, you know, people can recognize, I know when I'm stressed, I go into over control or I'm not very pleasant, or I can be rude, or I can be, I could withdraw and be quiet. Other people will be more in tune with feelings, right? And, and actually when I'm stressed, I feel negative, right? I feel unpleasant. I don't feel good. Okay. Other people are going to look at their bodies, right? I know I'm stressed because my shoulders are tensing up or I feel it in my stomach. And the fourth one is energy is I know I'm stressed because my energy is rock bottom. Like I'm still doing my thing, but I just, I'm just out of juice. So I think, you know, I'd invite anyone, you know, listening and and watching to think, okay, what's the major indicator that I use today for myself, right? And different people have their way. You know, for me, it's very much, well, I was completely cut off for my feelings in my career. So it was more my body in the end that, that told me I was stressed. That was it for me. But that's that's one of How does that manifest, if you don't mind me asking? For stress? So yeah. I've, I've got so into this that I can tell you that when I have pain in the back of my neck or tension there, that that is telling me something. So not only is there feeling there, but there's a past, not, not trauma, but past thing there that's basically telling me you're putting too much expectations on yourself. Like if I feel right. like my shoulders, it's like... So that's oh. like a trigger. It's an indicator. It's not a trigger. It's like, yeah, expectation is a trigger because if too high, I, I will do that to myself. I'll, I know that however much I'm aware and how much I work on it, it's there. So when I feel that tension in the back of my shoulders, like, ah, okay, expectations. And, you know, same, you know, I've got probably two or three of those, right? So people reconnecting to their bodies and be like, oh, that's actually an indicator because often people don't realize the chronic pain or pain that's always there can actually just be emotions trapped in your body and trying to tell you something. Have you read Bruce Lipton's work, The Biology of Belief and that whole series? So I've not read that book, but I've read Bruce Lipton, yeah. So that stuff is, is absolutely fundamental in making transformation because if you can get people to connect right to their physical body and emotions that are stuck there then you can a hear what it has to say to you and then release it and that's where the transformation also you know is part of it you can't transform just from your head it just won't work i'll come back to that just a second so if, if you haven't read or listened to bruce lipton's work his thesis is that the brain originates from the gut and those gut feelings and those instincts and those kind of things are your body trying to protect you, to warn you. Really fascinating research. And actually, it makes a hell of a lot of sense when you dig into it. Uh, again, I did read it about seven, eight years ago, but it did stick with me. I would strongly recommend it. So, uh, Lauren, back to your point in terms of being able to calibrate these feelings and recognize them. Is there a process that you would recommend people go through so that they just become physically aware? So this, this is actually a tough one, right? Uh, to do that on your by yourself, I think having the awareness that your body is an indicator of stress is one thing, but to then pay attention to it is 
difficult. Okay. And often as part of the coaching, I ask people to check in with themselves in the morning, lunchtime, evening for a few weeks, you know, of what you're feeling. Cause people, we're just so numb to this. Okay. We're so, we're so, we're always in fight or flight. And so we're so numb often to our bodies that we were not, we physically don't feel it. So part of the work is often to just get people to reconnect with their bodies. And some people listening will be, you know, exactly what I'm talking about and be in tune with their bodies. Right. But one of the ways I think that that might be helpful is, is to recognize that when we're stressed, there's a pattern that happens for anyone, regardless of your personality, right? You, you will know your stress because you lose clear thinking. You lose clarity of thought. You start making interpretations. So this is the bit that humans do and animals don't do. It's like, cool, something's happened. I'm now going to have to make sense of this, leveraging my computer and the beliefs I have in my head and the stories that you know I'm going to reference to decide how what I make of this or not. And then I'm going to feel negative feelings off the back of that because ultimately it's not reality. You've just made an interpretation that suits you to, to protect your ego and feel safe, right? Ultimately, subconsciously. And then that's what leads to potentially inappropriate behaviors. Now we don't realize in that moment that that's an inappropriate behavior, but we know 95% of our thoughts, feelings, action, and then, you know, are subconscious. So it's just understanding that that's totally normal. So that, <laughs> that A, to give ourselves a break, Okay, because people are like, yeah, I'm stressed. And, you know, I'm a big advocate of of moving away from speaking of resilience and mental toughness, even though I can speak of it, because I think some people can misunderstand it as like, I'm super good with stress because I'm super resilient because I don't feel any of my emotions and because I can take a load on. Well, actually, if you're really good at managing stress, you, you can feel your feelings, you understand the signs, you do what you need to do to release that. And you don't allow yourself to get to the red zone, right? That that's for me stress management. That makes a hell of a lot more sense. But I think part of the challenge that we've got within Western business culture is that we have a very macho ethos. The the language we use is of war campaigns, targets, prospects, all this kind of stuff, closing, yeah. uh, objection handling client control, candidate control, and all of that, in my experience, over 35 years, I've realized miserably is an illusion. I've wasted an awful lot of time trying to push rope uphill because you can't convince anyone to buy anything ever. You can't sell them. They need to work it out for themselves. And they have to own the decision or else you're going to end up in a horrible place later because they'll either blame you for it Absolutely. Uh, or they'll churn. And you'll have to start all over again. And that's the best case scenario. There's all this idiocy that we seem to inflict on ourselves. So what are the questions that we really should be asking of ourselves that we're just oblivious to? But they're probably quite simple ones that would just make a significant difference in people's lives. No, I love that. No, I think it's great. Great, great summary again like it's really good to share with you around this topic i think we can literally go off track quite easily so thanks for bringing us back to the day-to-day -day life of a leader <laughs> yeah a leader in business right because that's the thing right often you know in sales especially the solution is in the eyes of the buyer right yeah. but that's the parallel of we create our own reality and therefore the reality of you the buyer is different to your own reality and it's this whole idea of perceptions the only truth is how someone perceiving things there is no truth okay 
we all have the truth is a perception. It can be open to misinterpretation or interpretation. So, you know, when you're selling, when you're trying to persuade someone or in business in general, seeing if your client's satisfied, one client might be satisfied with what you're doing, but the others you're doing exactly the same thing. He's not satisfied. Why is that? Because he's perceiving it from a different lens. There's six different lenses. We can talk about that later, but that's kind of just wanted to just make that bridge around like, you know, sometimes this stuff can sound a little bit like far away from the day-to-day business world, but it isn't. It, it is the business world. I, I couldn't agree with you more because I, I often get accused of needing to be simpler and uh, making it more practical. And I hands up, I absolutely agree. However, this kind of deep thinking is actually necessary because if you don't understand what's really going on, then most of your assumptions will mean that you're digging the hole in the wrong place. Exactly. Absolutely. I mean, one of the biggest thing is helping people with self-awareness to understand how they're contributing to this issue. Then relational awareness, so they can sit in a room and, you know, if you have two people, there's one person, there's two people, there's really three with three people because there's the person in between, which is the relationship between the two people. When you start teaching people to look at the relationships in between people as basically an open can of misinterpretation <laughs> you need to validate you give them power to see things and and that's the stuff that we you know because like there is no black and white truth it's just the perception of the other person your job is to try and see what they see can you explain that framework of the six different lenses then because it sounds like that's what you're alluding to just then yeah absolutely so as human beings the process communication model is, you know, is the science behind this, right? And we will look at the lens through the perception of thought. So looking at facts, you know, from a logical perspective, we will either look at the perception of something through opinions. We'll either discuss, um, yeah, what we feel and what we think of that as an opinion. So again, it's not a fact, but it's an opinion. The third one is feelings. So we can perceive a conversation. For example, you go into a meeting, you know, you go into a meeting, someone's going to want to know what time, the deadline, et cetera. Someone else is going to tell you how they, you know, why are we doing this in the first place to make up their mind as to in their opinion, whether they should put their time in or not. And the person, for example, that's perceiving that meeting through their feelings, they're going to tell you they're not feeling good about it or worry about other people's feelings or the impacts of these decisions. The fourth person is going to rock up and look at it through the lens of reaction and just tell you whether they like it or they don't like it, you know, and and that's more of a kind of fun, playful way of being. The other aspect, the fifth one is imagination. So it's leveraging your reflection as a perception, right? It's reflecting it in your in your in your inner world and connecting some dots. So they're not going to say anything, but they're going to listen and connect lots of things and imagine what, what the possible of whatever is being created in that meeting. And then the final one is the action-based perception. It's the one that we we always tend to look at, right? As we think, we act as human beings. In meetings, anyway, in corporate, that's what people encourage to do. So we've got thoughts, opinions, feelings, reactions, imagination, and action. So at any point in time as human beings, we during our day, we are switching between those lenses throughout the whole day. To a whole day. And that's proven. Okay. And so when you're when you're 
having a conversation with someone, a sales prospect or a peer, or you're trying to motivate people, you have to understand that their perception of what you're saying could come from a different lens. So if you're going to talk to them, motivate them about, I don't know how to take actions, but actually you've got a room of people that perceiving things through the lens of how they feel, well, you're going to be completely off and that's going to cause distress and miscommunication. Okay. So I'm really interested in how you apply this. And it may not be something that you've done, but um, how you might apply this in terms of building a team whose strengths make the weaknesses of the others irrelevant by covering all those bases. Yeah, I mean, that's my work in in, in businesses. So when I actually work with a company, um, we look at doing PCM profile, the CEO and the leadership team, and then actually it's used for recruitment as well because once you can understand someone's natural default perception, so we don't just have, we'll have a base. So we'll have a one that's set when we're three, okay, based on the environment that we're born in. And then that is how we speak. That's our language. That's what we're comfortable with. If you speak to me in that way, I'll always understand you 100%. So in in TA terms, that's your scripting, in effect. I can't, I'm not, I can't make a comparison to the two. Um, I'm satisfied in it. So, but there is a bit. It sounds quite similar that from the age of zero to six, you've got your parent script that's running. And it's recording in the background. So potentially uh, your base would potentially, yeah, be yeah. be like that's your way of being like well, you can observe it in kids at three. My niece, you know, I'm pretty sure I know where she's at. And and then at seven, what happens is the others will stack up at seven based on how often you you've used it. It's really a question of practice. If you've been used to, you know, being in a fun, playful environment, you're kind of more like uh, reaction based fun playfulness will be highly energized in you. Right. But if you're in an environment that's like, I don't know, like super strict, then that bit is probably going to be at the top kind of top of your personality structure and not really energized. Okay. So basically self, this model is is amazing because it helps you understand that we're a mix of all those perceptions. That's how we perceive the world, but we, we have some preferences and some perceptions that are more easy for us to, to access. And in others that are actually more difficult and take more energy. But this is why, for example, you know, if someone's like, you know, when I speak to leaders around empathy, right, it's always this thing, either someone's too empathetic or compassionate and they can lose themselves with people or they find it really difficult, right, to be speaking of feelings, okay? They're very extreme cases. And I use that case because it's more tangible in the workplace, right? But all that that really is, is someone hasn't got access to they'll energize their feelings perception as much as the other person and so it just means that you know they don't have the tools or the language to really be comfortable when speaking in that way does that mean do you see what i mean it doesn't mean yep, not no, absolutely it's just they're just not as fluent in it and, and, and energized in it it was interesting i uh, interviewed uh, my pal red stuffstrom who coaches introverts to become uh, account execs and one of the, the pointers that he suggested was to look at how people recharge their batteries. So if you're someone who goes out and parties to recharge, odds are you're more likely to be extrovert. If you're someone who is perfectly happy in a quiet, dimly lit room with a video and some popcorn and a large bottle of wine, chances are you're probably more introvert. Uh, if that's your, you know, if those are your default settings. I'm curious, in terms of people's recharging process, Presumably, that must be a, a critically important element of stress and stress management. 
Absolutely. And that's a really nice segue into talk about psychological needs, right? Because recharging our batteries ultimately is a psychological thing. So the introvert is going to recharge by being on his own or her own. Okay. That's literally going to energize someone. And an extrovert, the extreme opposite will be around going out and contact with lots of different people. So that would be more from, from a PCM perspective, the rebel, the rebel personality trait, right, is, is more that extrovert aspect. And then the imaginer, right, who's going to be really more into their thought and their inner world is probably going to be your extreme introvert. Okay. And in between, you have other different types uh, that we all have within ourselves that all need to require energy. But the reason why it's like, you know, we have a base that that's the language, but then we'll have a phase. We'll have a different one of these perceptions that motivates us. And that's how our stress gets, gets manifested or, or observed. So psychological needs can change. And that's the biggest message I want to leave people with is, is to really ask themselves, like, what is it that energizes you? Cause it's not just exercise. It's not, you know, exercise, well-being, all that stuff. I'm, you know, I help people perform from place of well-being. So I can talk about that separately, but it, this is actually around, you know, some people will get recon, you know, energized from someone recognizing them as a person. Okay. So being grateful, like, you know, if your manager, for example, is trying to like motivate someone or, or show appreciation, if you've got someone that's got, for example, harmonizer base, right. Or, or phase. So that's, that's their motivation. That's really into feelings and, you know, they like to help people and please people and, and all that kind of stuff. And you're not acknowledging them for that or showing you're grateful for them being just being there and being thoughtful of other people, that's what charges them up, right? So that's what they need because you could tell them how much you want, how great of a job they're doing. Yes, tick. You know, in the workplace, we often recognize awards for the best, you know, the job and, you know, sales number and all that kind of stuff. Great. But there's some, you know, different personality types and it's very much mixed. There's no black and white, like biased on this. It will be very different. Some people want to be recognized for their commitment. Right. So uh, that's not not necessarily the quality the quality of the work, but the fact that hey, I'm what energizes me is doing something I believe in. And that's a bit of a killer in organizations because if you signed up to a company with great culture and their bosses are living their cult, their values, those personality types or or phase in those moments are gonna really struggle to like they're just gonna be drained because they're doing something that they don't feel like they're lined to. Well, this is, again, so important and uh, far too few managers ever really get the chance to understand this because there are so many accidental managers. Nearly half of the managers in the UK woke up one morning and they're tapped on the shoulder. Lauren, yeah. just fired your idiot boss. Congratulations. You're now the idiot boss. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's their runway. And so they do what they can based on what was done to them. And you know, they may try and read around the subject or get uh, help but by and large most of them are too preoccupied with the day-to-day of doing and doing is the least important part of management doing should be a minimum part of your activity part of the challenge here is how do you get out of doing so speaking to the stresses of managers specifically love you to maybe evolve that conversation uh, around particularly the triggers that uh, and ways that managers can address and prevent their own stress. So I'm just going to confirm the question because I'm hearing so many things I can go in all sorts of different tangents here. But how to get out of doing is a question. Yeah, how, how, how to get out of your stress is another. Yeah, fair enough. 
Marcus, ask one question at a time. Lauren, how do you get uh, managers out of doing first? All right, thank you. Thing is, I've got access to this imagination in me, and honestly, everything's like all over the shop right now for me. Well, when you, when you described that, I was just thinking, oh, we're in trouble here. No, no, I've got great. So how to get out of doing So again, if you can, and this is why I want to make this kind of PCN stuff more accessible to people, because if you can understand what you're highly energised in terms of those perceptions, okay, because doing is really only one of the perceptions. Action, right? The action one out of the six is only one of them. And before taking actions, you know, there's thinking that takes place. You need to feel into it to make sure it's the right thing, right? Is it aligned with your values? Okay. And then you take action. So again, if you can understand more about your tendency, if you're a doer, so if you're a promoter type, which is all action-based, like my subconscious mind is wired to take action because if I don't take action, I actually don't feel good about myself, right? I need the excitement. I'm motivated and powered by excitement. If you're one of those personality types, they're not even going to be listening to this around how to get out of doing because for them, like, do you know what I mean? It is just how they're wired and they just want to do, but they might want to know how to be more comfortable with patience and slowing down and leaving room to other people to do it themselves. Okay, but the job of a manager is not the doing bit. No, it's facilitating the other person. That's what I'm trying to say. So that's that's the extreme, right, of often what we see in organisations. That promoter energy is very much encouraged in companies is what I'm trying to say. And this is uh, where where I was headed. So I think we're uh, agreeing violently at the moment. My concern is that over the last 40 years in particular, we have elevated and put on a pedestal, those who take decisive action. Often, the general sense is just run in any direction. Eventually, you'll find someone who'll buy. And if you keep doing that for long enough and hard enough, the problem I see with that is the human cost is immense. Seven out of 10 new hires will fail in the first year, and nine out of 10 won't make it through to the second year almost none make it through to uh, the end of the third year. So you've churned your entire sales force in the space of three years. So all that knowledge has come in and gone. You've trained them, you've hired them, you've spent money on them, you've expensed them, you've kick off meeting them and all that other shit, only to burn through these incredible resources. I, I look at the way people sell stuff today. Recruitment, no one wants to hire anybody. They want to hire someone who's successful in the role, gets better over time and stays for a very long time. Absolutely. I think, I think you know, that we are agreeing rightly, as you're saying, because, you know, uh, just another stat to add to that is, you know, obviously I was in sales for 15 years and I was actually my promoter stage. So I was motivated by action, the excitement and thrill of winning and challenging. That's why I think I was also really successful. I'm a harmonizer base. I'm also, you know, feelings. So feelings, relationships, action kind of worked, right? When you're working for a company that you genuinely believe in, having a solution as match. But I found out with PCM, there's only 9% of people who are promoter base, okay? 9%. That's really small. It's just happened to be in the sales organizations of companies I'd worked at. They recruited a lot of that kind of energy, the action, the doer, the challenger. And that's why next thing you know, you think everyone's like that. And then you're in this environment where it's completely biased, basically. And what's really interesting, some of the best managers that I know 
had been held back because of that culture, mm-hmm. because they weren't the action doers, top of the leaderboard. Yeah. But when you put them into management, they exploded onto the scene because they were fantastic at getting their people to meet their, their full potential. They actually gave a damn about other people and they weren't selfishly self-orientated. So one of my constant questions is, are we hiring for the right quality? So are we hiring in our own image only weaker? Are we hiring people who perpetuate the things that actually don't work? Mm-hmm. I, I look at recruitment and you look, you know, you, people go out there and they say, oh, we want hunters. Well, do you? Hunters bring in new business. New business generates 18% profit in SaaS on average, based on a bank SaaS survey in 2019. Upsells created 170%, but expansion sales created 1150% profit. If you're representing yourself as a, a guardian of shareholder value, surely making 1150% is better than 18. Hmm. Um, that, right? <laughs> I mean, maybe if the numbers were really you know, very skewed, but then you look at things like the 99 to 97% failure rate on outbound prospecting, the churn rate of customers, you know, 15% churn rate uh, means you've replaced, you've got to replace half of your customers every three years. And it costs a fortune to acquire. You spent a packet on data, your sales team have been out there. Um, So why is it that management is so fixated, despite the fact there are these six different perceptions uh, or six six different uh, uh, models, why is it that action seems to just predominate? Yeah, no, I think in organizations, the three the three profiles you'll actually see in leadership, right? Are often going to be the thinker profile, so perceiving the world through thoughts, the persister, so values, commitment, dedication, right? Precision. And then the third one is the promoter, this action-based energy, right? So it's like we want, you know, we want people that are really committed to company values. Um, they're going to be organized and analyze things, and then they're going to take action. Okay. And a lot of large organizations specifically, I think the, the more human bit can tend to be less important because you've got other people to deal with that. <laughs> okay. And then you end up with these kind of high senior leadership teams that are really looking at the numbers and and you know, making sure we deliver. And we take action. And then somewhere, somewhere, you know, if the feelings and empathy and compassion isn't in that mix as well, then you can find yourself in in, in, in in an environment where, yeah, people just lose the human aspects of things and understand that, you know, you're human, we're different. And, you know, for me, the, the, the thing that people can change, and this is why, you know, I talk about transformation. So yes, from an individual perspective, I love doing that work. But when I work with organization is, you know, a lot of it comes from the founder and the CEO, right? Based on their personality profile and how they built their organization, there'll be no natural tendency based on their profile and how they've recruited. You know, I, I was coaching someone yesterday, founder who wants to, you know, pass on to someone else, another CEO, they did their profile. Exactly the same profiles. They thought they were completely different. It was amazing. Mm. I was like, oh, you're exactly the same people. Therefore, well, not the same people, but you're very similar, same stress mm. patterns. Major blind spots, major blind spots, and you're reaffirming each other in those blind spots, right? Well, you have other people that are different, and there's a constant tension between them. But as long as there's the human aspect of respect and empathy and care, right, then that tension 
can great create greatness. And I think if people were brave enough to understand themselves, they'd be more confident to hire more diverse profiles of personality types. The lesson I've learned the long and hard way, but I stand by this, is that you should have diversity in everything but values. I want people with different backgrounds, perspectives. I want them of different ages. Um, I was speaking to a good pal of mine last week uh, who said that if you don't have a coach who's at least 20 years younger than you, if you're in your 50s, maybe 30 years younger, then you're really missing out. And you know, we, we can learn both you know, through, through the generations, but I, I'm still struggling because I think that the middle management layer is pitifully underserved and massively under pressure. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I think understanding their people would make their lives significantly easier. Um, but what, why is it that they spend so much of their time stuck in reporting instead of trying to derive the best out of other human beings? Well, well, I think the question to how do you get people out of doing is, is you know, coaching, is helping managers take on a coaching posture and learn to detach themselves from the results and understand that, you know, to take this posture of empowering the other to, you know, to solve things themselves. Just that mindset, right, even though people go on coach training and managers, like often it's missed, but it's that mindset of I'm going to help them do it their way. But how do I do that? When I think of the training and the journey I've been on to be able to do my job and what managers have access to to try and help other people, I'm like, you guys are like going to war with like little paper, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Little paper straws, do you know what I mean? Like yeah. you can't really hold space and support someone in your team if you don't understand, A, you understand yourself. So the PCM does really help with that because once you understand yourself, it's easier for you to then comment with confidence or see things in others that's similar to you or different to you, but ask the questions around that. So for example, if you've got someone, you know, I think for me, the answer is if, if, a great leader and a great manager both will be able to look at someone, hire them for their, their key strength or whatever, but then help them stay there. And really, it's just if, if you hire that person for a reason, you went through a selection process, you made a decision. And if that person is in a plus plus high energy, best version of themselves, they're going to deliver for you. The problem is, you know, because sometimes we can overcomplicate this, is that we spend, you know, we spend 80, 90% of our time in distress as human beings. Okay. 90% of our time we're in distress, second level, and as part of PCM's consent. So 90% of our time there's some sort of distress kicking in. And so being able to for managers to help people understand what they need from them to be in a good place is most of the work. You know, I've had some high performers work with me directly, you might pay themselves and say, hey, I want to become a manager. And, you know, I've been told X, Y, Z, can you help me get those skills? And, you know, one of the things they realized, it's like, well, now, you know, these are your needs to access your best self and reduce your stress and access you know, your way of managing. Go and tell your manager that when they see X, Y, Z, to keep an eye out for that because that's your distress pattern. Yeah. Sometimes when you're in it, you don't see it. So do you know what I mean? That's what I mean by empowering each other. Okay, well, I'm I'm painfully oblivious to my stress patterns. So could talk talk us through the different levels of stress in terms of you know, first, second, third level, so that we can recognize you know 
yeah um, so again others if we won't recommend yeah that. i mean this is the actual training and also i can't answer that question unless i have three hours yeah. but high level if 90 percent of our time we're in destruction so it means 10% of our time we feel great and we're good and we've got, you know, we're also in relationship with other people. We're communicating in a, in a positive, like helpful way. Then it infers that, you know, there are some little signs, first degree, that's going to tell you like, cool, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, I might be more of a contributor, a bit more detail oriented, or I might be someone that is going to over adapt and people please, or, you know, in the first degree, I'm going to be, again, we're not going to feel negative feelings when we're doing that, but we're just going to feel like someone, a piece DM training can observe that in someone, right? So you can kind of see, okay, that person's starting to look at the negative things and pick out the, the things that don't work. Again, that's not a stress. Most people would not think that they're strength signals. They actually would think they're assets. I remember when I found out that over that, like adapting to other people was like a stress signal. I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm just being nice to people. Like I'm being thoughtful and, you know, I'm trying to like be nice and really took me a while. And that was really, you know, changing my pattern of like, whoa, no, that if you're over people pleasing that's just the doorway of distress that's just the beginning sign of hang on a sec yes it's useful and that's why you're probably good at this job but if your psychological need is not going to be met and you're in you know you're you're going to go into defense mode that over adaptation can be unhelpful because you're going to forget your needs you're going to do too much for the other person they're not going to recognize that you're going to become resentful and you know, there's all sorts of this kind of messy drama that can come off the back of it. Where would the personal narrative fit? Would that be in feelings or in opinions? So each one will have its different distress sequence. So each phase, so basically you'll have a base through your language that's three, and then when you're, you know, throughout your life, you can change the, the default perception that suits you in that point in time and that's where your motivation and stress comes from and each personality type um you know will have different ones so for the first second and third just high level for people to actually have something actionable here it's just to acknowledge you your your stress signals you're not going to feel negative stress at the, the beginning right when you start feeling negative feelings it's already second degree if you're feeling a negative feeling, it means that at some point earlier, there are, you know, there are some things you didn't need. Maybe you didn't get the detail, the facts you wanted. Maybe you feel that this is not aligned with your values. Maybe you feel like that you are not, um, you know, it's not fun. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're just purely just bored, you know? And so you're going into your second degree distress at this point, And that's when you start feeling negative. But if you can understand what the first one is that's the doorway that's when you can go ah okay i'm starting to feel negative feelings i need to know i need to go back to my needs which is i need i need structure of my time or i need whatever it is based on your personality type and the third degree which we don't really talk about much in in companies but that that's each personality types is version of depression if you're staying in that just <laughs> too long okay too long as in like you're you're constantly in those sequences and you're not getting out of them then you can get stuck in that third degree which which looks different for different personality types so are they personality types or are they phases that people can move through and you can transcend and include by being able to do each of those six or call on those six but some you'll have a greater affinity to than others. Well, that's the complexity and the magic of the PCM model. So I wouldn't be able to go any further with it because I wouldn't do it justice to explain the complexity. But basically, once you can understand the difference between your base 
and your phase of your profile, you will then understand your wiring and you also will be unique in the way your sequence manifests itself in that way. And you'll be able to connect the dots for yourself. And then once you've done that, then you can start interpreting and seeing signs. And that's why it's really the power is within ourselves. And PCM is not going to tell you, hey, do this and it's going to change your life. It's, hey, it's going to help you understand like how you're wired. You connect the dots for yourself. And then off the back of that, if you really want to make a change, then look out for those things because you, it once you can't change what you can't see, right? So once you can see those things, if it's serving you, keep doing it. Because most of our stuff serves us, otherwise we wouldn't be how we are, okay? It's just when you're really hitting a wall, right? Whether it's in your career or your relationship, or you just know that you're just, there's some things you need to take responsibility in changing, then understanding that is fundamental because then you can actually make a change. And the magic for leaders, if you do that work on yourself, and it's really like, I can do it in two hours, right? But you can then see it in your team, right? You're like, ah, Okay, you can infer. Okay, cool. When it comes to feedback, I need to really help you with structuring your time. And I shouldn't put invites in your calendar last minute because that's really going to, I'm responsible for putting you in distress if I'm doing that. Okay. And then someone else, it could actually be like, as long as they feel they're working on something worthwhile for them, they'll be great. You know, so I just need to make sure they're aligned with what they're working on. So if you can understand psychological needs of your team and, and you can, a, motivate and engage them for themselves. That is in, you don't have to do anything. You just have to help them make sure they stay in that way. So that's actually really hard. But then you also bring responsibility because I think since, you know, this pandemic, this whole, you know, that we talked about the drama triangle, like company persecutor, employee victim, right? <laughs> and yeah. then, you know, whether it's a coach or whether it's, it's someone else or whether it's a company that's going to save the day with this magic training, it's like, well, actually, how about you just just understand you're responsible for supporting me being my best but I'm also responsible for understanding myself and telling you what I need it's just unfortunately because we're blind to this stuff we don't know what to ask for and it's a lot easier to blame and be victim of of all those things this has really been very fascinating Lauren thank you as we start to wrap up is there anything that we I should have asked that I didn't first of all I think the only question probably potentially would be when people say, okay, like practical steps and how to manage stress. Cause I talked a lot about PCM, you know, you engage with it and you're excited about it. And hopefully it's given someone, you know, people material around questioning themselves. And there's an actual answer to this. This is, it can be demystified quite simply. Let, let's pretend I asked that question. All right. So some practical steps, if you don't have access to PCM stuff, right, it would be breathing, you know, the, the power of the breath, yeah, you can literally be as smart as you want around all this psychology stuff. Ultimately, if you want to find peace within and peace outside, like just manage your breath. It's the freest resource and tool we have as human beings to regulate our nervous system. Um, it's just because we're always in like this fight or flight mode. It's really hard to start breathing again and taking more oxygen. So any breath work exercises, so we're not talking about meditation here. We're just talking about four counts in, four counts out, resonant breathings, you know, Google breathwork, that will help you reduce your stress without having to understand all this deep psychology. <laughs> so that's one. And um, second one is mindfulness, right? And again, that will be speak to different people. But if you can, if you're interested in, you know, if you feel anxious and you have a predisposition of being stressed and you feel it more than others, then 
you know, understand that we cannot be stressed when we're in the present moment because our ego will only kick off this stress behavior when we're worrying about the gap between expectations, right? Like I said at the beginning, whether it's in the past or in the future, if you know you're in a crisis mode or stress mode, just focus on the task at hand, be present. And that's how you can basically, it disappears in that moment. (laughs) Uh, Focusing on being present is incredibly powerful because it's uh, a release from attachment. And if you've listened to the podcast for any length of time, you'll have heard me quote the Buddha, attachment is the root to all misery. All evil, yeah, all suffering, yeah, absolutely. So I think in sales, you can actually create something really cool around that because I was so, I remember being so attached, my identity was so attached to hitting my number. I was so proud of hitting every month. The first time I didn't hit, literally it was like my whole identity and life fell apart, which was ridiculous. Right. But that was praised by my, it was praised and that's not good, right? You need to be detached. It's not your life. It's not your identity. And So th- this is the thing that's really pissing me off, if I can be perfectly blunt. There's an entire generation of managers who been through that shit they know how damaging it is and in all honesty whilst they made it through there were some very good people who didn't who would have been fantastic in sales had they survived the cut this whole macho um idiocy that surrounds uh, sales and sales leadership uh, bothers me because we're in sales because of, and we exist because of, the customer. And that seems to have been forgotten because so much of management and leadership and selling is fixated on selfish metrics. BANT, for example, as a qualification process, is entirely seller-centric. There is no value to the customer in asking, are you the decision maker? Do you have a budget? Where is it? How much of it can I have? Uh, None of that serves the customer at all. And I'm really curious, given what you've come to understand about human behavior, if you had a golden ticket, what would you whisper in the ear of the idiot Lauren age 23? What would you choose to do differently? What, What bit of advice would you give her? And that you know at the time she'd have thought, nah, I'm full on. But she would have stood, uh, it would have stood her in good stead. Right. I, I know the answer. So this has literally just come straight in. And I would have rejected it by the yeah, way. Of course. I, I yeah. would have gone, absolutely, you know, don't be ridiculous. That's great. And actually, yeah, I had, I had rejected it at the time. The first one was, don't worry, it'll all work out. <laughs> okay, don't worry, honey, it'll all work out. Drive me curious you have to control the process you have to control the number those not going to hit the number blah blah it's control 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 right just to leaving it hope is not a strategy was one of the things right that I was wired with well actually I've learned to unlearn all of that well actually it's the other way around it's like you've got to let things emerge and work with what is I mean that's a completely different extreme opposite but if you can create a trusted relationship with someone and really listen and and be conscious about serving being of service to them and let them lead the process, okay, then you can actually have a much different impact. So at the point, it's not all, it's all going to work out again. No, thanks. Um, That's not for me. And then the other thing would have been breathe, just, just breathe. Okay. And I've got a little card that was written by my teacher when I was seven, because I had anxiety when I was seven years old already at that point. Just breathe. You know, when you think things a bit too much, just stop, pause, 
breathe, count to four, tell yourself you can do it, you know, self-doubt, all that kind of stuff. And again, you told me that back then, I'd be like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> I was in my promoter phase as well. So I would have that action excitement. So that would have been slow and boring. So it couldn't have been anything worse. But I think to anyone out there listening is, you know, I've actually gone through, you know, burnout, I've gone through trauma, I have gone through spending hundreds of thousands on this journey okay of self-understanding to heal myself because I was told I wasn't being able to ever come back from where I was and you know when I learned that actually breathing (laughs) is the thing that has the most impact and that being present and learning that that was the hardest if I'm quite honest because intellectually you know psychology learning that stuff that was you know I found that easy and interesting but to actually sit still for 15 minutes and breathe <laughs> and be alone with your thoughts is was hell and 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 you know to start with but then the more you sit with yourself and you go on this path of self-acceptance and then life just becomes a lot easier and can be detached and be comfortable in the uncertain and become comfortable with the uncomfortable is what all my clients get to learn eventually and they're like, I know what you mean now Lauren like I didn't know what was going on but I was comfortable with it I just let space for it I trusted it would resolve itself and the team resolved it okay that's a very different posture even though you might tell a manager to be a conscious leader that's what you need to do they're going to not be in a capacity to do that if they cannot sit with themselves and access a state of calm compassion or confidence very, very interesting. Look, I'm really disappointed we have to wrap up so soon. <laughs> However, what books would you recommend or podcast videos? So based on different personalities I've listening to this, I was trying to figure out like, because the thing is, I'm kind of, people tell me when they tell me, you know, how do you work on yourself? What's the inner work you do? And people go, I listen to podcasts, I listen, I read books and all that kind of stuff. I'm like, cool. I did that too at the beginning. And that's great. You're ingesting content, but your capacity to put that in practice and to make a change because your subconscious is running your life is very limited. So all you're going to do is be aware of what you should be doing, but you're not actually doing it. So I'll give you a couple of books, but really my message is go, go understand yourself and, you know, go and seek an environment. So whether it's a group or an individual or whatever, or coaching, but to understand you because self-knowledge is self-empowerment ultimately. And once you understand yourself, you know, you, you can then choose what resources that are going to be best for you rather than just lap up whatever the most, you know, famous or, you know, most credible person is saying on the day, you know, you, you, you empower yourself to choose what's going to be right for you. So no book recommendations. I will, I will give you one. Okay. The Chim Paradox, I think is a great book because when you talk about it, it it describes the mechanism behind the subconscious mind and, you know, your beliefs versus the, um, you know, your chimp brain basically is your ego. And I think if you've got a rational mind, so if you recognize yourself as a personality type of being unorganized, logical, super rational, and, you know, you want to get into self-discovery through more of a rational Mm -hmm. lens, the chimp paradox, you know, was used, you know, by, you know, the the trainer for the cycling team that won all the GB Olympic medals, right? It's helping them understand their chimp. I've also named my chimp to create some detachment. There's all sorts of stuff. So if you've got a rational mind, read the chimp paradox. It'll give you science around how to understand your limiting beliefs and understand your triggers. So I think that's a cool one. If you're more someone that feels stress in your body and you have chronic pain, um, I recommend the body hold, holds the score you know, in a a book that helps understand how emotion gets trapped in our body and and creates chronic pain. So it's got all the science there. It's mind blowing. Go read that. If you're more into your feelings and, you know, mindfulness speaks to you and you're already practicing, then The Power of Now um, is the book that helps you understand that. That's uh, Eckhart Tolle, yep. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think when you read that book, you realize, wow, everything's so simple when you read that. And that's what I mean. Well, if you can invest in in being interested in mindfulness and you know, there's a way of transcending all this deep psychology and just being present if if you, you know, if 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 that's something that you're you're interested in. So I think these are the three books based on the different, you know, different ways people want to understand themselves. So I'm not saying there's one way. You know, the reason I went to seek PCM is what I was presented to me in my coaching training, but it was also because bring science to human operating systems. So suddenly we take away judgment from our stress behavior. We're like, oh actually like you know this is a human thing it's not I'm not going to judge myself for it do you know what I mean everyone does it so how can people get a hold of you so laurencartini.com um you can follow me on LinkedIn you can contact me through my website and mostly LinkedIn is where I'm most active and share most content but you know I'm you know my, my thing really is to help people believe in the first place that we can change that that's the biggest message I want to put out there is believe you can change you know I was a machine I was a sales machine I was super successful my personal life was you know fell apart twice okay my health fell apart so I had a lot of success but my health and my personal life was suffered and I think the people I speak to that's actually very common and people don't talk about it so that's why I'm it's come up several times on the podcast the one that comes to mind laura de De benedetto and she ended up having internal bleeding uh, and all sorts and she was mega successful all for nothing Um, and and that's what i'm saying that's why when i discovered all this stuff i'm like why the hell are we not taught this earlier right whether it's schools or even as uh you know as a high performer right to the the dangers of success right and i I refer to the success paradox and around that okay because Again, if you can understand yourself, success you know can be toxic for lots of people. Some people, for example, are super good at getting in the gym. Um, they're like, yeah, I'm super disciplined. I go to the gym every day. And actually, actually, that's a distress. That's like you're going too much. That's actually your third degree distress you don't realize. But you look really healthy and everybody tells you you're super great. Like I remember when I was in my sick, most sick, I was told I looked amazing. I lost so much weight because I couldn't eat. My gut literally wouldn't digest food. And I, and I was, you know, I was literally so skinny that was like, oh you look amazing you look great and I'm like wow if only you knew <laughs> if only you so that's why I think the link understanding the link between our thoughts and our body the key is there and presence and breathing is the link so you can take little small steps by just questioning and observing yourself become the observer of yourself and that's how you can start questioning what you're doing because you are the expert of you and that's what I want people to really walk away with because often we can say oh wow these people are really smart they know all this stuff like I don't know this stuff and it's like no 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 you are the expert of you you're just not creating the space and time to reflect on yourself to figure out when was I in a good place what did I do last time to get myself out of this situation and try and find those things and go back to those things right anyway I could keep going I will stop (laughs) Lauren Cartini, thank you so much. Really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, Do get in touch with Lauren via LinkedIn or other forms of social media and email. If you want to get a hold of me, Marcus at laughs-last.com via email, DM me on LinkedIn. Now, if you're an ambitious salesperson and your manager's not really coaching you to the full extent that you believe you're capable of accomplishing, then get in touch with me. It may be that I can help you. It may be not. But if I can't, I can probably refer you to someone who can. 
But I'd love to have a chat. In the meantime, for the rest of you, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.